I want us to turn to the book of James. And I want us to look at a couple of things there. Back before everything went haywire in the pandemic, I was teaching Wednesday night out of the book of James. And um, one day soon, maybe next year, I may finish that along with the latter chapter, the last chapter of 1 Timothy. (laughs) There's a lot to think about every day. There's a lot to desire. There's a lot to seek. There's a lot to hope for. There's something I've found in my own life, maybe it's true for you, is that we spend a whole lot of time trying to be happy. A whole lot of time. I mean, we get up, we think, uh, it's a terrible day. Or maybe we get up and say, man, it's an awesome day. Or maybe we get up, we don't think at all because our brains aren't turned on. But there's one thing about it is most people either want to be happy or are complaining about not being happy. Either externally or internally with someone else or by themselves. It is a mantra. It is a drumbeat of our life. I want to be happy. 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 And this pursuit of happiness is something that is foundational to our culture, foundational to the ideology of of our religious experience as as, as a nation, historically. I mean, even our Constitution gives us that right. The right to life, liberty, and the what? Pursuit of happiness. The trials come, though, is when we think that happiness is found in a place that it isn't. Or we say to ourselves, okay, happiness for me is X. We, so you didn't think you'd need algebra. <laughs> so you solve for X. You try to figure out what is it that's going to make me happy. Aha, I found it, or I found out what it would be. Now let me pursue it. If I was just in better health. If I was just in better financial health. If I just had a better relationship with my family. If I just had more friends. If I just had a spouse. If I just had a better job, if I just felt like I made a difference, if I just had purpose, and this isn't new, we've all been there. And we all think that finding happiness sometimes means how other people view us, how accomplished we are, what is success, what is purpose. I mean, you know, you name it, it's there. And if you want to find somebody asking that question, just throw a dart in the air and see where it lands. The world is full of those questions. But the world is also full of even manifold answers. And yet, have you ever met someone who says, you know, all I ever wanted was this. I solved for X. I found it and I've been happy my whole life. No. A lot of posers, a lot of posturing, a lot of fakers. A lot of actors, hypocrites, you know. Too blessed to be stressed, too anointed to be disappointed. You know them. I love these guys. They're always excited. I just want to see what happens at home. Or when they run over a nail and the tire blows out. Or, or, or they get the bad phone call. Or they get into an argument. You get a speeding ticket. <laughs> what happens to that jolliness? See, that's the misunderstanding a lot of times. People, we... We think that there's a hierarchy in life and that happiness is at the top of it. And I'm not quite sure that I don't disagree. I think happiness is at the, at the point. But what holds the point up but the foundation? So to seek out happiness really needs to understand, I believe, where it stands. 
in my scale of how this looks in my life, it may not be the same for you, but I believe Scripture would agree with me, and hopefully I agree with it, is that happiness is just the tip of the iceberg, that joy sits underneath that. And now we're talking, now we're getting spiritual, joy, joy, joy. Where is it? Down in my heart, right? But let me tell you something, guys. A lot of times when we talk about the joy of the Lord is our strength, it is at best platitudes. It is at best just a lot of good verbiage that sounds good, much like the same guys are saying, too blessed to be stressed, God is good, when? All the time, all the time, what? God is good. And the next thing you know, it's just this wave of spiritual nonsense that's actually not spiritual at all. It's just emotional, oh, band-aids. And there are a lot of people who are not here with us this morning who are part of our spiritual family because they're not happy. And because they're then hearing the preacher and the pastor and the elder and the culture of Christianity say, well, you don't, you're not happy because you don't have your joy in the right place. And that's not wrong. So then we seek out to find a place where joy is. And then when we find some joy in the solace of the gospel news, of the good report of Christ, then all of a sudden we still find that it's wanting because it's just this headspace that we live in. And so we're fighting constantly the voice inside our head and the spirit that supposedly lives in there, which we've yet to feel, understand, or enjoy. So we come back to church or we go to ourselves or we seek out something else. And at best, and I talked about this a few weeks ago, at best we learn that joy is found in distraction. Let me just not think about it. Because, I mean, let's say, listen, if happiness is the dopamine of life, then comedy is the drug. And I love comedy. I've used comedy. I, I used to think that comedy was just something that naturally was part of my personality, but it's not. It's a Band-Aid. It's a drug. It's something that helps me, one, laugh, and laughing, no matter what it's about, makes me feel happy. And then, two, comedy. Personally, if I can be funny and make you laugh, then I've done my job of making you happy. Despite how ridiculous the source may be so then we get to the joy we get to this compounding thing of like okay you know and what happens when we really try to establish happiness in the joy of spiritual things we become stoic and that's why i mean could you imagine i don't know what comedian said this years ago but since late 80s and we're talking about how everybody, Christians are supposed to be free, Christians are supposed to live the best life now, Christians are supposed to be all this, that, and the other. Jesus is our freedom, our liberty, our savior, our glory, our joy, all this kind of stuff. But yet we walk around with such mindset that there is not one person within a thousand feet of us who would say, I want to have the joy of that person. And so we fake it. And then we seek after whatever means would make us joyful. And then we get to the place of thinking, well, you know what? Joy is just an inner, it's just an inner settledness. I've just got to... You don't think Jesus smiled and laughed? He wept. It's okay. But then we get to a place of, of, of being taught in Christian culture, well, you don't really have joy because you're discontent. And doesn't the Bible teach us that? Be content. 
Be content. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. So then we internally grumble and complain about the fact that we can't grumble and complain. Don't lie. You do. Yes, we do. We feel it. Even if we don't cognitively know in our conscience that it's there, we are doing that. We think, well, I've got to just really focus on it. Then we begin to place ourselves for contentment in a place of self-righteousness because we fear the Lord's wrath when the the wrath of God has been poured out on Christ. We fear the judgment of others because we're not, in our own view, looking at ourselves like a movie. We're not watching. We're not living in a really holy way according to our neighbor. And so we strive and we strive, and by God, if I can just be as miserable as Jesus on the cross, I'll be content, and there I'll find my fulfillment. And it's funny, but look at church history. Look at the poets of the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th century. Look at the theologians who went from whipping themselves literally with scourges to whipping themselves emotionally with self-deprecation, to whipping on everybody else, to where it became that a church service in the, in the 1900s. <laughs> no wonder Charles Finney was able to create the mourner's bench. It was just an extension of the hearts of the people. So I believe that if we are to find happiness, we must understand joy. In order to really live joy, we must have contentment. And in order for contentment to be there, we must be fulfilled. But that's in the reverse order. Fulfillment is both the beginning and the end of the Christian life. How do we get it? How do we get it? James chapter 4 warns us against what the world has to offer. 1 John does the same thing. Do not love the world or the things in the world, for the things of the world, the pride of life, the pride of possessions, and all these things are passing away. Right? And so, and they're not. This, this, this love, this affection, this adoration, this pursuit. You know what I've found in my own life is that maybe this isn't true for you. And that's the second time I've said that because I don't want to put things in your life that aren't there. But I'm just going to share, be a little vulnerable. What's really amazing to me is that if there were something more fulfilling and more enjoyable and better for me, I would be doing it. When? Every day, every second of the day. So when we're sitting there and we're watching like nine hours of television or we're just staring at the ceiling or we're doing something destructive because we're like going to Krispy Kreme or whatever it is that, that might be good for us or bad for us, there, if there was anything better for us or more fulfilling to us, we would be doing it. Now, I'm not talking about in a literal sense. I don't want in a personal since that we've evaluated life, we've evaluated the options, we've evaluated the day, we've evaluated the calendar before us, and we've said, okay, I've got 168 hours this week, and I'm going to spend it doing X. That is your fulfillment. That is what we think finds us fulfillment. I need to rebuild a carburetor on a lawn tractor for three weeks. But I can't rebuild the carburetor on my lawn tractor because I really don't want to do it out there in the middle of the yard. And I don't want to take off all the stuff so I can take my other tractor and pull the yard tractor up to my patio. And I don't want the thing on the patio because it's right out the back door. And there's already two or three grills and some other junk up there for the last six months. So I don't really want that there. But I could just take it down and pull it on the trailer and carry it to the guy. And for a hundred and something dollars, he could probably fix it. But that's a waste of money. When I could fix it in an hour 
I can rebuild that carburetor in just a second. Oh, but I can't because I really can't find the tools for the carburetor because they're in the garage, and the garage has got a bunch of boxes in there because I've just been cramming stuff in there for the last year. I can't get in. So if I get in there, they're going to have to organize that. But what am I going to do? Where's that wrench? What's that number eight millimeter? My gosh, I haven't organized these wrenches in days, in years, in months. I have to do that. So before I can ever even move the yard tractor, I've got nine months worth of work to do. So I'm going to grill hot dogs and play with the dog and find me something sweet to eat. And then I'm going to get on the phone with one of you because I want to know what's happening in your life. Yeah, somebody's like, I'll fix the carburetor. You see what I mean? And there we go. So we find something else to do. So for me to feel happy, to find joy, to be content, to be fulfilled, I just decided just to... Some people might call that ADD. Some people might call that normal. Some people might call that, listen, that's okay. Whatever you call it. The New Testament gives us a roadmap from moving from fleeting happiness to enduring joy to through fulfillment. In the book of James, we hear these words in chapter 4. Let's just read chapter 4 for a minute. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not and you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Now see, all of a sudden now, the tone of what I'm talking about has changed because everybody in here has tried to find fulfillment in the last 45 seconds of this. And thought to myself, okay, I know what fulfills me. I know what gives me contentment. I know where my joy is. I know, what the, I know what the Lord wants. And then you hear this. And you hear James say, James the apostle and James your pastor, you adulterous people. And now all of a sudden we're back in this cycle of, oh, see, I really need to watch out. What am I doing? And we get too, we get too focused on what we're not rather than focused on what we are. Verse 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. You see, there's the out. Never, ever, ever stop with you adulterous people. But that's where we want to stop, right? Because that's what we do in our arguments. That's what we do in our internal arguments. And quite honestly, the context of this passage deals with uh, with relationships deals with the church deals with the community but it also deals with the exact same thing that paul talks about in romans chapter 12 which is the internal in romans 6 and 7 which is the internal quarrel the internal fight the internal desires of our own minds and it's so superficial to think well i just love you know tom and i were talking about big houses from this past weekend (laughs) or last weekend some big houses. There's some nice houses out there. And sometimes we think, man, if I could just have a house that somebody else maintained, I'd be fulfilled. Until tax season. And then I'd be like, man, I missed the little RV I used to live in. There's never going to be enough 
And so when we think about these things, we need to recognize that it goes deeper than just the surface tension of possessions, the surface tension of culture, the surface tension of keeping up with the Joneses, the surface tension of wishing that I was the best dad, the best husband, the best teacher, the best pastor, the best this, the best that. He gives more grace. So we find ourselves sitting here today and we're just wringing our hands and we're just tearing our clothes and pounding our chests. Oh, God! And the Bible says, God says, I give you more grace. (laughs) So what does that mean? That means we're not here today to figure it out and get it right and walk it. We're here today to understand it. We're here today to apply it in a way that in God's timing, with His grace, we will walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And what is that manner? Faith. Faith. We trust and rest. We rest. Have you ever ran a race in a restful state? No. It's oxymoronic. But it is the truth of fulfilling, of a fulfilled life in Christ. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I mean, think about that for a second. See, for the last three minutes, I've given illustrations about how we, you, I can do. I can change. I can be. I can think. I can process. I can perform. I can. I can. I will. I do. I want. You know, and where do we see the example of a someone, a person saying, I will in the Bible? It's the fall of Lucifer. (laughs) And so James is reminding us that we need to be humbled. We need to recognize that it's okay to have dreams and visions and goals and plans. It's okay that those plans aren't evangelical. It's okay that those plans don't, ex- don't include being an extreme missionary. Because quite honestly, the world hasn't been changed by extreme missionaries. The gospel has not been spread by extreme missionaries and preachers. The gospel has been spread by the nobodies of the world doing nothing but what they were called to do day to day and living life with purpose and fulfillment. Enjoy. You take that to the bank. Being a radical Christian is the dumbest thing that ever came out of the mouth of a pastor. We want to be, we want to be an influence. We want to be an influence. We influence your own thoughts by the grace of God and influence the own household that you live in and influence the friends that you have without posturing this ridiculous spiritualized conversations. Just be you. Resting in the sufficiency of the Lord and the gospel of grace that is sovereign and free. And that is a battle and you might do it once a month. Well, and the other 29 or 30 days, depending on what month it is, or 28 if it's a leap year, whatever it might be, you probably are like me and you're in a state of just sort of limbo. But you put your foot down on a foundation. And that foundation is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you don't have to apprehend it. You know, Christians need to learn theological truths and need to apprehend and understand, and they will. But those understandings, that apprehension, and that application is not required of you. It's not required of you to feel or to know that you are a child of God. It's not required of you. God's not going to just whoosh all that in our minds and keep us from distraction when he regenerates us. He's going to bring us to a childlike faith that knows when I wake up tomorrow, mommy's going to be there making my breakfast. Daddy's going to be there making my lunch. They don't fret over it. 
child wakes up in the middle of the night, Daddy! They're not saying, is my daddy here? Where is my daddy? I don't know. Do I have a daddy? No, they're calling because they know that daddy and mommy are there. That's the faith of God. That's the faith that God grants His children. And yeah, oh boy, all these well-meaning people who want to take that and put it in a, what do you call that thing that you spin out blood with, you know, in the lab, I can't think now. And you get it all and you dissect and you pull it out and you get it this big microscope and you pull that out and you get a bigger microscope and you start getting into the real nitty-gritties of the microscopic. If you don't understand the programming and the sequencing of the mitochondria, then you are lost. You're not lost, you're free. If that's your hobby, whoo, go get it. If it's not your hobby, <laughs> don't find it. He gives grace more and more. He opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. The very illustration of Jesus telling the story of a tax-collecting, robbing publican, piece of trash, human being, robbing his own mama. Terrible, terrible political piece of garbage. And the epitome of epitomes of social highness, the Pharisee. And the Pharisee, Oh, thank you, Godeth, that I am not liketh the Republic of the Middle. The King James prayers. Thank you that I'm not like that person. And I tithe and I pray and I'm coming to church. You know the one. You know and then the publican can't even look to heaven. That's how we started praying with our heads bowed. By the way, that's the, that's the Puritan idea of closing your eyes. And, you, know, you prayed like this in the first century. And by the time we get to, uh, you know, Bunyan, we're digging a hole like an ostrich, putting our head in it. He can't even look to the heavens. He can't even open his eyes. He just tears his clothes. He beats his chest. I'm not worthy. And he says these words, propitiate me. Satisfy your wrath for me. Have mercy on me. And Jesus says, that man went home justified before God the Father in holiness and righteousness. This man went home condemned. Why don't we marry that into our present day? To be fulfilled is to be the highest of all highs. The word for that is Elohim. We say God. Making themselves to be God. To be like God. Romans 1, ringing a bell. Submit ourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. And we know the devil, right? We know the word enemy there, the word adversary. Resist this temptation. But it's so easy for us as Christians to just take this temptation and go, oh, yeah, you know, I'm tempted to do this. I'm tempted to do that. I'm tempted to say this. I'm tempted to say that. I'm tempted to think this. I'm tempted to think that. Blah, blah, blah. Things that I want, things that I wish I didn't want. You know, a lot of us live in that Romans 6, Romans 7. Why do I do the things that I wish I didn't want to do? Why do I want to do the things that I don't want to do? Blah, blah, blah. It's okay. That's called human nature. It's just the way things are. And God has not promised that those things are going to ever stop. He has promised victory over them in this body of death. <laughs> and it's amazing that when we focus on that rather than focus on stopping or doing or changing, 
we actually change. But the adversary, you know, those are simple things. Those are obvious things. But what about the internal things? What about the self-righteous things? Not even like the pharisaical self-righteousness. Like the self-righteousness of just thinking, I've got to do better. What's wrong with that? I've taught my children their whole lives to do better. But you know what? If all you're ever taught is to do better, then what's good enough? What's good enough in your Christian world? Oh, look at Tiffin's up there preaching mediocrity. I'm preaching, I'm preaching submission to God. This is submission to grace. This is submission to the Lord. This is submission. This is fighting also the adversary in the context of certain types of self-righteousness. I remember early in my ministry, you know, you get to a church that has prayer meetings, you just do prayer meetings. And people are like, we don't have enough prayer meetings. Well, you know what? I've never been to really a productive prayer meeting. It's like an hour of everybody gossiping and then like 10 minutes of somebody closing it out in prayer. And never once have I ever heard him that, Lord, forgive us for all the gossip we just did. We just talked trash about every one of our loved ones and all the people who aren't here. I mean, I had to, I had to take up a bulletin one time at one of the churches because just trying to be helpful, <laughs> posted some trash on the back in the prayer list at the back with a name with a comment on the side of why we should pray for this person. And it was deprecating. It was actually almost incriminating about what this person had been doing <laughs> and who they were involved with and why they shouldn't be. I'm like, no, 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 hand me, give me those back. This isn't how that works. No more prayer list in the bulletin. <laughs> we'll announce it. See, even stuff like that, we're trying to help sometimes, but we just, our flesh just gets in the way. Because we really want to know. We don't really want to pray. So our lives lived as Christians, seeking fulfillment, fulfillment and, and, and happiness and joy and contentment. Sometimes we even act self-righteously in that pursuit. It's a crazy thing. But James continues. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now these aren't prescriptive. This is just explanation of our mind and our lives. We draw near to God. God, draw, God never separates from us. Well, the reason it's so bad is because God's left me. No, you've left him. But you can't escape him. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The devil can't. The angels can't. Powers can't. Principalities can't. The government can't. Time can't. Before time can't. Eternity can't. God himself can't. There are things that God can't do. And the Bible says it. God cannot lie. God cannot fail. God cannot dispose of his people. God cannot destroy those for whom Christ died. God cannot hold you guilty for your sins because they've been paid for. I mean, you see what I'm saying? He can't renege on that. He can't go back on his word. He can't void that contract. It's paid. It's done. It's in the bank. It's full. So we draw near to God. Cleanse our hands. There are things that we know we ought to be doing. Things that we should wash away. Well, there's things that we know, but let's not focus on those. Purify our hearts. Don't be double-minded. Now there's a context here for James. In verse 9 of James chapter 4, it says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Holy cow. Isn't it amazing how like generations 
from the, for centuries have taken that text without remembering, without remembering, God gives more grace. <laughs> what James is talking about is this haughty attitude, finding joy in one's self-righteousness, finding joy in one's stature, finding joy. He's talking about finding joy and fulfillment in earthly things. Humble yourselves before the Lord, verse 10, he will exalt you. You want to be lifted up? You want to be something special? Just lay before the Lord, you're something special. You want somebody to know your name? No, you don't. You know who you want to know your name? Jesus knows your name. You see that, you see that illustration? There are those that will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, who are you? I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Didn't we preach? Didn't we pray? Didn't we give? Didn't we serve? Didn't we love? Didn't we cast out demons? I never knew you. So being famous in the world, being famous in the work of God, being famous for the things that we do, being known in our company, being known in our community, being known, it's not important. It's not fulfillment. If it happens, it's a lot harder to stay humble. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Do not speak evil against one. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law but a judge. And I'm not going to preach on that. I just want to get the full context of this to get to the point that I'm getting to. There is one lawgiver and judge he was able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? See, that's another element of when we are able to find fulfillment, rest, and hope in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the gospel, we destroy ourselves. We beat ourselves up. Then we conform or perform in such a way that we now measure ourselves against what other people have said is good Christian living, is fulfillment, is happiness, and we find a bitter joy, a distasteful fulfillment, and by God, we want other people to be as happy as we are. By God, if you'd live like I did, you'd have joy. Just look at my face. Happy all the time. Got joy, joy. I mean, you know, you can see it. I'll let the caricatures roll. Come now, come now, come now, come now. I know what all of you are saying, James says. You're going to do this, you're going to do that. I'm going to be successful, I'm going to be happy, I'm going to be fulfilled. Today or tomorrow, I'm going to go into such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Woo, we got it. Let's go. Nothing wrong with that. Go do it. Hallelujah. Start a business. Get a job. Do something for fun. Find a hobby. Get active. Work your mind. Enjoy life. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Verse 14. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now think about that for a second. Sometimes, remember I said, sometimes even in our pursuit of fulfillment and holiness and joy and all these things, we end up becoming self-righteous, self-effectual. It's not the point. I talk to people every week who can't leave the house, who can't walk, who can't breathe without machines. 
Their life isn't over. Their life hasn't lost its purpose. It's just beginning. Happiness is fleeting. I say all that to say this one thing. Happiness is fleeting. The transient nature of happiness, when it's aligned to the world that we live in, and everything in it is going away. The pitfalls of seeking material or superficial sources of happiness are just a fool's errand. The scripture teaches us a different happiness. And sometimes when we look at the Bible, it misaligns with modern pursuits. Am I doing this because it's what I want? It's what's good for me? It's what's going to build intimacy? It's what's going to make true fulfillment? Or am I doing this because I really don't like me? And I want to be seen. I want to be productive. I want to look in the mirror and know that I've done more. Listen, that's the, that's the plot of all the good movies that sit, sit right there in my soul. And I won't name some of them because some of them may bother your conscience. But these true stories that turn to cinema, I love good cinema, but it's got to be good. I mean, it's, it's got to be good. I have an amazing talent of turning a movie off after 10 minutes or walking out of it after I've paid for a ticket. So I don't go to the theater much. And I have another talent of going to sleep if it's boring. And I have a third talent that I can watch a whole movie because I just want to give it the good Boy Scout try. And then three years later, I'm watching it go, I get to the end and go, I've already seen this terrible movie. I block it out. The trauma. <laughs> so we've got to reflect on the sources of happiness in our life. And we need to consider their impermanence. It doesn't mean we remove them. We just need to consider their impermanence. There's application number one. Why? Because the Bible teaches us to set our minds on things above. Colossians 3, 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. As we look to the things that are unseen, not the things that are seen. In the midst of looking at the things that are seen, we put them in their proper perspective. So if happiness is like the silly little sprinkle on the top of the cake, then where does this joy fit in? Where does joy fit in? When John chapter 15, Jesus says these words. You can go there if you want. John chapter 15, I read out of this text probably a couple of months ago. I think I might have read the entire thing. These things I've spoken to you, starting in verse 11. I hate reading verses. I'd rather just read the whole thing, but... Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy. Now look at this comparison here. Everything I've just said, you're like, eh, but you know, you don't know my life. Jesus does. Hebrews tells us that he has understood and knows every way experientially, not just divinely and sovereignly in, in his omnipotence, in his omniscience. But experientially, in his humanity, he knows and understands everything that any human being has ever gone through or ever will go through. He understands it. Beloved, that is the best friend you could ever have. You ever try to talk to a friend about something you've gone through and they're just looking at you like you're speaking some other language? And worse, sometimes they try to give you advice and they don't even know what time of day it is. As you used to say when I was a kid, that you don't even, you're all in the Kool-Aid but don't know the mix, all in the mix, don't know the flavor. 
And sometimes I hear people and they talk about things and I've never experienced them. And I try and I have great empathy. I can feel their suffering. I can feel it to the core that it becomes mine. I know what it means. I know what their fear feels like. I know what their depression feels like. But I cannot understand the journey. Christ does. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. See, joy emanates from a deep, abiding relationship with a best friend that's been there and knows everything that you're feeling. When you talk to them, they, you know they get it because they've been there. There's some things in life that I know about. I know what it's like to have loss as a man, as a brother, as a son, as a husband, as a father. I know what it's like to feel pain. Physically, emotionally, financially. But not in the same way you do. But Christ does. He understands every piece of that. He understands every piece of that. And so when we grasp this reality, when we really start to put our minds in this type of thinking and become mindful of where we are and what we are and whose we are. Biblical joy is resistant to external circumstances. Happiness, fleeting. Biblical joy, resistant. And Christ's teaching provide a path to this lasting joy. So what does that mean? Well, the first application is we need to look very clearly and have a good, well-rounded understanding that happiness is temporal. And we need to have an equal understanding about our spiritual practices and disciplines. And know that when we are running after... I've had this... Listen, it's like an epiphany over and over and over again. You'll say, yes, I get it! Three times this week. I get into the Word... As much as I can, and then I've got a whole bunch of other stuff to do, and then I find myself navigating this to do, not to accomplish the tasks, but to be fulfilled in it. To quit answering the question that constantly rings in my conscience, why? What good is it? What's the end game? Oh, this. You've got to do this. You've got to make this. You've got to produce this. You've got to be this. Now, some of you may not have that issue. <laughs> And I hope you never do. But I think most of us do. Every now and then. And the simplistic way that the Lord brings us back is by reminding us, just read my word and watch. Just watch. Just stand down and watch me. Look at me. The founder and perfecter of your faith is what Paul says in the Hebrews, to the Hebrews. The one who's gone before, the one who's gone into death, the one who's raised to life, the one who's at glory, who is going to share his glory with you and make you as he is. <sighs> Breathe and think on that. Think on that. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a divine quality. And it's within our grasp. How? 
by grace, by the work of Christ. And the way this is truly manifest is in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the stress, in the midst of the day-to-day, in the midst of the Monday, in the midst of the what in the world, in the midst of the suffering. There would be no glory to see in the, in the sublime if there weren't the minutiae of the ridiculous. And so when we put our minds there, the day-to-day minutiae becomes manageable. And in my mind, it becomes meaningful. Wow, there's a reason that I'm doing this. And I don't have to know why. God has given this to me. James says that too. All good things come from the Father above. The Father of lights. So we need to understand the depth of joy. And now go over to Philippians 4. I think I might have been in there. I've been all over these texts. I just wanted to put it all together today. Paul talks in chapter 4, verse 10. Well, verse 8, 9, you know that, whatever is true. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. This is where we need to put our, our minds, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. See, we put our time and focus on that which is best for us, according to us. The Bible disagrees and says whatever is here. Think about these things. Whatever is worthy of praise. That means we have to throw out every little happy kick that we enjoy, but we need to make sure that we put it in perspective, that it's fleeting, but that biblical joy has a depth that cannot be overcome. And finally, or not finally, but almost finally, the root of contentment. Paul says, I rejoice greatly, verse 10, in the Lord at length that you have revived your concern for me. See, I said to somebody last Sunday at a brunch that there's a worse place to be than alone and they looked at me and I said ignored to be ignored is awful to be alone is bad but to be with someone and be ignored that's indifference that's tough beloved God does not ignore us And when people revive our, their concern for us, it feeds us. And that's why dopamine is so powerful. That's why people would rather get likes on Facebook for foolishness than produce a quiet, invisible benefit. Quiet, invisible benefit. In verse 11, he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. I've, I've learned. I don't have a need. Now, he had a need, right? Paul had a need. He says, but I don't have a need. In whatever situation I'm in, I'm supposed to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And in every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do it all through Christ who strengthens me. I can do it all through Christ who strengthens me. See, contentment, is how I put it, is a state of equilibrium. Contentment 
is what keeps us from falling into the ditch. Contentment is what takes away the tightrope and puts a big, broad bridge with sharks that can jump out of the water over our heads and scare us. But contentment is a state of power, a state of purpose. And the, the Stoics, oh, man, if the Spirit of God had not brought me to the truth of Christ, I could be Stoic. I could put it all down. I could stand and walk in a way that my body and my mind can function. Oh, like a steamroller going one mile an hour. Nothing can move it. But God the Spirit has brought me to life. And so when my natural flesh stands there as a place of solidarity, I realize that contentment is truly the foundation that's found in Christ alone. What is that contentment? I can do all things. I can manage. I can endure all things for the sake of Christ. And it can exist in any circumstance. But contentment is not liking something. Contentment is not being happy about something. Contentment is not saying, well, this is great. Yeehaw, let me just... But contentment is in the midst of whatever it may be, good, bad, or indifferent, that we know that our source of fulfillment, our source of joy is not in these circumstances. And more, not more, but as important as that is we recognize that our identity and our worth and our value is not found in these circumstances. We are not what we do. We are not what we accomplish. We are not what we think, even though Descartes would say otherwise. In Christ, we are found in Him, you see. I've been talking with a lot of seniors lately about legacy. And the premise of my approach in this is that legacy is something we live today rather than something we leave behind. A memorial is what we leave, and it only points to something we've done. It doesn't point to who we are. If we are truly to make a difference in life, then we need to be who we are in Christ, that the lives around us may be changed. Remember what I said at the beginning, that God's gospel has never actually powerfully been effective with the hyper, awesome evangelist, missionary. I mean, if that were the case, then where are all these tens of thousands of people who are constantly on fire for Jesus for six months? I mean, when somebody can stand, I used to be an itinerant speaker. I used to be a conference speaker. I used to be a motivational speaker. I know what it's like to stand in front of a crowd of 15,000 people. You know what it is? Impersonal. You can't even, in certain venues, you can't even see that there are people there. You're just standing and talking into a light. You can't see them. And you say something profound and it changes some minds and then we go out to dinner and, you know, six months later it's over. But what really has sticking power is you. The Lord working through you in the lives of people you don't even know are listening. That's what matters. That's what matters. But it doesn't feel good. It doesn't find it. it, it we're not content. We're not seeking content. We're just seeking escape or like, woohoo, we want that kick. 
At least I do. Now can I actually be honest about it because I've discovered that was true for me. What is the one thing that contentment has that other things don't? Gratitude. I mean, think about that. Mentors in my life used to say, I just thank God for the whole mess. I'm like, whatever. You're not thankful for this. And you go through some of this. And you think, I'm not thankful for this. Then you learn through the knowledge of scripture what contentment looks like and then you start seeing the example and when you practice it then all of a sudden something changes you know if you're 70 years old and you experienced trauma when you were 5 or 10 or 20 and you've carried that trauma with you and you've carried the emotions and the stress of that trauma with you all those years that within just 3 to 4 weeks of refocusing your mind on the reality of where you are and who you are, that that goes away. It goes away. Paul says, renew your mind. And we don't, do we? We don't ever change the batteries. We don't even get enough sleep. Sleep is the number one way that our mind heals and grows. We don't meditate on the Word of God. It's the last thing I want to do when I'm upset. Let's just be, let's be honest. I mean, if y'all think I'm this, like, real pious guy that floats around, and you got another thing coming. You come to my house, and you start hanging out with me, you're going to realize that I'm a human being. And if you've got an expectation of me being Jesus, you're going to be sorely disappointed, if not appalled especially who I am today because I'm not hiding anything. I'm not going to pretend like I'm not thinking or feeling the way I'm thinking or feeling. And neither should you. We can't hide from God. But you know what? When we do that, what happens is other people look at us and they go, oh, you know what? Look at that. that, that. Oh, poor soul. Let's have a prayer meeting. Let's talk about all the things that I saw, all the things that I heard, and let's pray for God to help each and every one. Matter of fact, let's give a list of these things in front of everybody and pray exactly how we know God should answer these prayers. Yeah, you've, you've been there, right? I've been there. I've even been the person talking like that before. It just happens. And here's the cool thing is that when we're content in the foundation of th and, and gratitude is a foundation of our life, we can thank God even for that nonsense. And when regret comes along and gives us a punch of the solar plexus and we can't breathe for just that tiny little, that's right here, the stomach. Uh, some of you are like, what? <laughs> what is this, astrology now? Uh, anyway. We can't breathe. It just lasts for a second. When regret punches our gut, we just need to Thank God for the feel. Thank God for the stress. Thank God for the circumstance. Thank God, God, you, you have this. Because by and large, the life we live is self-fulfilled prophecy. The mind we have is self-fulfilled prophecy. We think about it, we say it to ourselves, we verbalize it to others, and the next thing we know, everything that we say is bad is bad. 
and it's in direct disobedience to the scripture. Do everything without complaining or grumbling. What? That even means in our own thoughts. Because it, you know, I don't even know what to call it. My personality lends itself to extremes. My verbal personality, my antics. And sometimes when that gets turned on, it's just like I can not even be upset or even care much, but I just get excited about the conversation and can bring the entire tenor, the entire feel of a circumstance, a room, or a relationship in a half a second to a screeching halt. Can't you? And if we can do that to the people around us, what are we doing to ourselves? How did Paul maintain contentment? He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know what it means to be brought low. I know what it means to abound and have everything I need and have lack nothing. He said, but I'm learning to be content. How? Because Christ gives me strength. Christ gives me strength. Commitment is a manifestation of submitting to, like James told us earlier, submitting to the Lord, humbling ourselves before the Lord and His will, and that means trusting in His sovereignty and His providence in our lives. It doesn't mean we don't ask. It doesn't mean we don't labor. It doesn't mean we don't feel awful and that we don't have a complaint. We can complain to the Father. It's okay. But we can stand up. And we can look and we can see. That we have a lot to be thankful for. And that God is with us. He's with us. See, we don't believe that every day. I don't believe that every day. I know it. But I don't rest in it. Faith is resting. I don't rest in it every day. So I have to go through these silly little trials. And then finally, fulfillment is the goal of life. But it is the beginning and the end of life. All these other things are going to come and go. Contentment, not as much. It needs, to be the, the, it needs to be the status quo. It needs to be the 55 or the cruise set. If you get down to 40, you get up to 70, that's okay. Just don't stop and don't go off the cliff at 100. That takes practice. It takes discipline. Maybe by the time I die, I'll get it. I hope you can get it before then. But in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is preaching. And in verse 6, y'all know this. Trey's been here many times in the last few years. Not Malachi, Matthew chapter 5. He starts to teach these attitudes that we ought to be having, to be attitudes. And he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. <laughs> I really need to preach another hour, y'all. They will be satisfied. Fulfillment. I mean, we go to a restaurant, we order food, and we leave, and sometimes 
we're not full. And Robin and I have left restaurants before and went, we got to go buy McDonald's. That just wasn't enough food. Or we've gone to like a reception and there was like a tomato apiece for 40 people, you know. Like, we need to go somewhere to eat. Not the wine running out of the wedding in John chapter 2. You're not full. Or sometimes, you know, you, you go experience something. You go to a play or you go to and it's like, oh, I just sort of left me empty. You have a conversation. It's like, ah, I feel dead inside. Or you leave the church assembly. You leave the gathering. You're like, I just, I'm just not getting it. You're not full. But when you are full, you know it, right? When you go to that buffet and you're like, this is $9 and they got shrimp and New York strip. I'm about to get $50 worth. See, that's how I used to think. You know, because the kids are going to get a strawberry and a biscuit and a piece of cake and some ice cream. You pay $10 for them. I got to get that $10 times four plus my $10. That's $50. I'm going to get it. And so you eat nine pounds of shrimp and you count them too, by the way. You know, if it's an 18 piece shrimp plate, you count. Hey, hey, hey! It's a half a shrimp. I want the other half a shrimp. But when you leave, you can't breathe. Now, this is gluttony, friends. I'm not prescribing it. I'm just explaining it. You're full. You know that you've had food and you're settled. And you might even have to, like, unbuckle your belt. You know? That's why I like these sliding belts. They just sort of get your, like, hey, Robin, you got a hair bow? You know, tie it around your button for a minute so you can let your pants out some. You Because you got to drive an hour back home. You, you're full. Or you see a movie, or you hear a song, or you read a book, or you have a conversation, or you enjoy some comedy, or you have, or whatever it might be, and you're just full. Your child brings you this card they made. And it don't look like you, but it's you. And you save it. And every few years you have to like throw some of it away because you can't save it all, right? And they come in, they were four, they're 12 now. No, you got to away my gift card. I mean, oh God, okay, I'll put it on the refrigerator again. But it makes you full. It makes you full. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. What is fulfillment except ultimate satisfaction? In whatever context it's there. And friends, we should seek fulfillment in anything that we do, but we should understand that it's not going to last. And when it comes to the pursuit of happiness, we need to remember that joy has depth and that contentment is the, is the standing place. It's, it's the glue that holds it all together, but fulfillment is where it comes from. It's not what takes us there. Happiness, joy, contentment doesn't take us to fulfillment, but it does. It comes from fulfillment. So think about all these other things as the sandwich and fulfillment as both breads. How do we get that? 
Fulfillment is derived from a life that is aligned with God's will and purposes. Now let me go back to the very beginning. How in the world are we supposed to align with God's will and purposes when we have so many iterations of what God's will and purpose is for us? We have this invisible audience that we're worried about looking at. We have these people who are constantly, maybe unspokenly, telling us how we ought to live and how we ought not to live. To the point that there are people that have been in my life that have told me that I was wicked and missing out on the blessings of life and blessings of God because I had pictures of my family hanging in my house. Or that I dared read a book by Plato. Or about a wizard. Or that I fed my child an Oreo. Ask Robin about that one. That was her battle. ridiculous we're free of all that and we can just go wow that's not fulfilling it's not fulfilling being a puritan is not fulfilling you're hungry but if we thirst and hunger for righteousness we shall be satisfied the question then remains what is righteousness well, righteousness is the fulfillment that sustains and feeds back into the contentment and the joy making it an end and a beginning so what do we do? We examine our life and our purpose in light of the Word of God and our ultimate purpose in life. And you've heard this. This is so cliche. is to give glory to God and enjoy Him forever. Do you know what? If the God of my culture is the God of heaven, I don't enjoy Him at all. If the God of evangelicalism, as He's been caricaturized for so many years of my life, is really the God of the Bible, He's a killjoy. Not only that, he's sexist and racist and hateful. But we know that's not true. How? Because we have the Word of God. And so when we see the implications of all these things, we know that something's wrong with the way the world and the Christian world is portraying the God of the Bible. And it's not going to change. We, it's not going to change. We have to look at the blueprint. Some months ago, Trey preached on this very text out of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. And here's what Paul says. And he, God, put all things under his feet, Christ, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now think about that for a second. So if I'm lacking satisfaction and fulfillment, I'm going to be lacking contentment, purpose, and joy and happiness. And if I'm lacking in joy and contentment, I'm going to be lacking in fulfillment. Colossians, Paul says, is a similar thing. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, but... And the fact of the fullness of Him who fills all in all, that in everything, in every circumstance, in every crevice, in every atom, in every molecule, in every epoch, in every idea, in every fathomable expression of eternity, in everything that can ever be in the world and in our life and in our minds and around us and near us, even if we don't know it, Christ fills it all. How can we teach that theologically to minds that can't grasp the infinite? 
as Brother Mike said earlier, songs sometimes teach us how to apply our theology. And as silly as it may sound, the song that always pops into my head when I think about this is a song that I sang as a little kid at summer camp, at whatever church it was, I don't know. But he's got the whole world in his hands. You remember that song? I mean, that's the only lyric, and then it's, you change the world to me and you and brother and socks and shoes and mother and whatever it might be that rhymes. But he's got the whole world in his hands, got the whole world in his hands, got the whole world in his hands, got the whole world in his hands. Can you rest in that? You know it, but can you believe it? Believing is resting. We stop our striving. We stop our pressure. We stop our nonsense. Jesus is the cosmic Christ. Not just a figure of history. He fills all things in all dimensions. Paul would say that he upholds the universe, the cosmos, the infinite everything. Do you know that's what universe means? Immeasurable, infinite, eternal, ever going, never stopping, never beginning. The mathematician in the room, I don't know how you do it. I would be calculating forever. It would drive me insane to be able to have the mind to even begin to begin to fathom that and from a scientific perspective. Christ holds everything. Are you part of everything? Yes. So our individual fulfillment is a reflection of Christ's own fullness. Our collective fulfillment is a, is a reflection of Christ's own fullness. His glory that we will share, that He will bestow upon us, His righteousness that He will give us in our recreated selves without sin, without the mind of sin, we will then also be as He is in the sharing of that fullness. And so anything else to find fulfillment in is just really not going to take root. You don't go to the steakhouse and eat the butter mints. Only. You do eat the butter mints afterward. Sorry. <laughs> take these for the next six weeks. They're gone before I get home, right? thousand calories of sugar we don't need to find filling in anything but Christ so that when we are fulfilled in him then everything is just dessert <laughs> makes sense to me how do we bring these areas of our life that are unfulfilled to a place of fulfillment. James said it. James said it. Go back to James and we're done. James chapter 4. Number one, we don't ask for. You do not have because you do not ask. But I have been asking. I've been asking for God to 
do this and to give me that. Yeah, but the reason that you're asking, the way that you're asking, is that you want those things so that you will be fulfilled. That's what we do. Not saying, oh Lord, these things would be a great icing to the cake of your fullness, if it be your will. See, that's James' instruction. It's a huge difference. But ultimately, the reason we can't be satisfied in that and settled in that is because it's not resting in this, in verse 6. He gives more grace because the pressure of just that instruction makes me want to do differently and be differently and pursue a path of fulfillment in my own feet, breath, and mind. Oh, I'm such a fool. We're all just hopeless in that fact. It's not make us bad or wrong or sorry or lazy or worthless. When we can't do it because we can't do it. And I would say to you that I think the people that say that they are doing it and posture themselves in such ways are lying to themselves. As difficult as vulnerability is, as difficult as authenticity can be, we can only be authentic and vulnerable as Christians together. And I know that not everybody who claims Christ has the, is in Christ. Not everybody has the Spirit, but those people will flesh themselves out because they can't handle that raw intimacy. They can't handle that, and that's not our fault. Quit pursuing that relationship as a way of fulfillment and stand in Christ and let Him bring people into our lives who will add to Him. Not that He needs adding to. You see what I mean though. If we seek after righteousness and hunger after righteousness and thirst after righteousness, we will be full. What is the righteousness of God? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Christ, who is our wisdom and our righteousness. Fulfillment is not just personal, it's, it's cosmological. And our individual, tiny, little, hard, little war-torn stories are part of a greater fullness that Christ has purposed for us as His people. Share that with each other. Because I think the greatest thing, like Paul said in Philippians 4, I'm content, but I am so full knowing that you cared that I was in need. It didn't make him fulfilled, but it poured him over. We've got a glass of water and it's all the way to the top, and we add more water, it just flows over and it, it just wells up. Sharing life together wells up. It's a great blessing being the church of Christ. It's a great blessing being intimate with Christ's people. But if we're not intimate in fulfillment and with contentment and thankfulness, with joy and happiness, we're never going to live true. Let's pray. We thank You, Lord, for the blessing of Your grace, for the glory of 
of all that you are. To see you for who you are, Lord, is a miracle. And even though we can peer into the text of Scripture and we can have ideas and we can come to a place of understanding and resting, Lord, it is, it is not permanent. We are always struggling. And so we thank you for this moment, just this moment, if nothing else, that we can have a sense of peace. Father, as we continue into this year, into this holiday season, and things can get strange, things can get lonely, things can get frustrating. There are many who are suffering among us. You know them. Many who have turned away from what is good and prudent and wise and fallen down in a path of destruction. Father, bring them to you that we may rejoice with them. And we thank you, Lord, for loving us in such a way that there's nothing we could do, no sin we could commit, no attitude that we could have, no words that we could say that would ever separate us from you. Lord, you love us anyway. And you're not angry with us, Father. You don't despise us. You're not seeking to hurt us. Help us to rest in that and to live that way. And Lord, to tell others of the goodness of you who are also bound into the shackles of your caricature. And Father, help us to lay aside every sin that ensnares us, whether it be an idea or an action so that we may run free and not look over our shoulders, but look to Christ who is perfecting us as we stand before you this day. In whose name we pray, amen.